the wonderful thing about storytelling, but also the maddening thing is that it's imperfect. Like it's, it's never going to be a hundred percent accurate, even when you're doing something that's very real. How many times have you like told a story about an event and you remember it with such vivid detail that it's burned into your psyche. Then you share the story with someone else who was also there and there's all the details you got wrong. And it's like, no, wait, we weren't here. We were there. And that wasn't this, it was that, but it's still the same story because it has emotional honesty. The point of the story isn't all of those, all of that minutia, because our minds can't really be trusted in that way. We're, we're fallible. And so for me, it's always been about emotional honesty. And storytelling, to me, good storytelling, is really about creating empathy. I think when we have a story that people relate to, it brings us together. Jason and Yvonne Lee, wife, husband, father, mother, actors, producers, and seekers, educators, explorers of identity. You're listening to Lager Lane Spirits, a delicious podcast where we invite you into our living room for a family spirit symposium, a real talk meeting of the minds over reverent cocktails. Join us as we dive back in time to examine the legacy of our ancestors that have shaped the stories of our shared cultural history. You can find all of our cocktail recipes and show notes on lageralanespirits.com. And as always, please enjoy. Responsibly. Welcome to our final episode of the very first season. We did it. Episode six. You are here with (laughs) us. Thank you for being here. In this episode, we ask, how do we honor identity without also exploiting it for the sake of uh, what we might consider to be a good story? Master say going to be peace now. Ain't going to be no peace. Not long as his white folk, said the fiddler sourly. Cause ain't nothing they day loves better than kill. Was he an African, or had he become a nigger, as the others called themselves? Was he even a man? He was the same age as his father when he had seen him last. Yet he had no sons of his own, no wife. No family, no village, no people, no homeland. Almost no past at all that seemed real to him anymore. And no future he could see. It was as if the Gambia had been a dream he'd had once long ago. Or was he still asleep? And if he was... Would he ever waken? Roots by Alex Haley, page 283. This is... To honor or exploit. Jason? Mm Mm-hmm? 
I think I need my drink before we can even begin talking. <laughs> what you got? <laughs> Hand it over, babe. I, I happily slide you the sidecar. Yes. Yes. I love this drink. I really do. Cognac alone, a nice pour of cognac is, is, is wonderful, but a citrus kick with the cognac forward. It's just, you, you had said this earlier, Yvonne. You said it's savory. Mm-hmm. This is a, a gorgeous drink because I love citrusy. But I, what I do like what you said earlier about the savory, the cognac really does come forward. Yeah. I love it. You know, it's I, delicious. Somebody once, I, I read this recently, somebody said, you know, for a three ingredient cocktail, the sidecar is one of the more complex drinks because if it's too much citrus forward, it becomes kind of like a margarita. You kind of lose the, uh-huh. you lose the booze, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. So finding the right for each and every taste bud, right? Finding the right balance. Like this recipe called for two ounces of cognac, three quarters ounce of Contro and three quarters ounce of, of lemon juice. I find those ratios to be a bit too much citrus. So I dialed back and made it half, half on lemon juice and the Contro. And I find that to be like a perfect way to tell the story of a sidecar. It's really a fantastic drink. Oh, that's interesting. So you change the recipe. You change this gorgeous golden recipe. As I look at it mm-hmm. to suit your interest. And your taste, Hmm. as we talk about exploit or tell the truth, that's very interesting. Hello, welcome (laughs) to our season finale of our very first season of Lager Lane Spirits podcast tonight, which is why we spent so much time talking about the sidecar. We are hitting (laughs) hitting heavy with the topic. Yes, yes. This season, Yvonne and I are exploring all things identity. Uh, we revisit moments in American history through the lens of our own family's roots and the legacy of the generations that have come before us. And yes, we are going heavy and we are going deep. We're going in. And why? Because storytelling can be a weighted anvil that drowns us to the depths of the deep, dark sea. Or it can be an albatross that carries us to the bliss of the high heavens. Jason, that was the most beautiful poetry. What's up? What's going on? What you doing? All right, people. Thank you. Do you remember uh, watching Roots when it came out as a miniseries in 1977 on TV? Yeah, I'm of the generation. We are of the generation, right? Like, I definitely have my uh, recollections and memories of when Roots first came out. But also, truth be told, I was six in 1977. And a couple of years later, we moved to the Philippines mm-hmm. in 1979. And so my memory, sometimes it's, it's kind of like when you see a photograph or you get told a story and then all, all of a sudden it becomes your memory, right? Like I definitely had a, like for me, I remember my adopted mom handing me Ebony magazines and Jet magazines. And that was her way of kind of connecting to me as her son and for me to embrace m- my culture and you know, my, my black roots. And I do have uh, a strong connection to what Alex Haley did with both his book and and what became the miniseries. That's my connectivity to roots. But what about yours, Yvonne? It's interesting. Like I, I don't think I remember, I remember hearing about roots, but I think with like a, a Filipino mom and a black dad from the South and having like one of those 
big ass televisions that you had to get up and go and like change the channel. All of that. <laughs> like we just yeah. didn't necessarily, you know, of course, you know, when you're a kid during that time, you're the, you're the remote, you go and you change it. But it wasn't really until they reboot the whole thing and, and reimagined it that I actually had heard of, of roots. And so it was as if I had a, a precursor to it, just learning about it through school and conversations that I would have. But but I never, at that time, like in, in during that time, I was I was still very young, and my mom had you know two younger you know I had two younger siblings, so but I didn't really actually know a whole lot about roots until later on when technology had sped up and I was able to access the information faster, you know, through social media, through even just like even being older and understanding so. It is an interesting thing to actually feel like at this time in my life to experience roots in a completely different way. And I feel like that 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 story held a lot of truth that at that time of my life when I'd heard about it, I didn't know that I was ready to accept it or take it in. Several years later, uh, when I was in high school, I, um, I came across a wonderful history teacher in my high school there in Chicago. And his name was Bill Dolby, and he taught the African American history class. And he had such an awesome way of introducing the material to you and making it personal and making it immediate to you. And that's what I think Alex Haley did with with Roots. I think he honors history with Roots. Anybody who takes on the story, the story, right, like or attempts to explore the story of how we got here, what we've been through, right? There are other explorations that can possibly go towards the exploitation route, right? Like I remember reading Manny, Manning Maribel's exploration of Malcolm X, and he goes personal. And Malcolm X is not here to either defend himself or agree, and he he goes on the personal route. And and with all due respect to Mr. Maribel, I feel that that is a kind of an exploitative route to tell a story, kind of a National Enquirer route to tell a story uh-huh. that could be come across as exploitive. So I, I hope the type of exploration of history that we are doing comes from an honoring lens and not an exploitive lens. And that's what this episode is all about. And I can't wait to get to the conversation with our, our dear friend, brother Kemp powers. What, what I will say though, you know, as, as you were speaking, I do remember hearing about roots and I remember even at, even as at a young age, or even you know when I was in my teens and I and I hadn't actually had the opportunity to watch or listen or to read, I remember feeling this sense of validation. This yeah. validation of like history being told and the possibility of history being told in a way that and and it, that that had not been opened up in high school, that had not been opened up in college, even though I heard it about it before college, but it was like oh there's more that someone hasn't told me and I need to go find out what that is. For those that don't know, the miniseries Roots was based upon the book by the same name, Roots, the Saga of an American Family by Alex Haley. It was published in 1976. His dedication reads, it wasn't planned that Roots would take 12 years. Just by chance, it is being published in the bicentennial year of the United States. So I dedicate Roots as a birthday offering to my country within which most of Roots happened. And I just love that historical exploration. We are trying to do a similar type of exploration, both personal and macro, here at Lager Lane Spirits. And I just, 
I'm moved by that attempt now all of these decades uh, later. But what a gracious offering. Don't you think, Jason? It's such a gracious offering. I remember when we were reading this speech, Frederick Douglass's speech, we did this for Laura Depp Theater, yeah. and how he talked about how wonderful the country is, but at the same time was... His famous Fourth uh, of July critiquing. speech. Yes. What is the Fourth exactly. of July to the American slave? Yeah. yeah. Right. And here we are, this black man who's saying, this is a birthday offering. This is to say, this is who you can become. This is who you can be. <laughs> We are some beautiful people. Well, Look how it, gracious we can be in it, these moments. Somebody oh my said. God. Somebody said. <laughs> somebody said recently, right? Like somebody said exactly. Somebody said our problem. Our problem is we love too much. Your problem is you hate too much. You know where's the middle ground? You know. So Haley was conducting interviews with Malcolm X for Playboy magazine, and and those interviews he turned into the material of his first book from 1965, the autobiography of Malcolm X, and uh, a, a little cool kind of well. I, I like to think it's kind of cool. We'll see if anyone else really does. If you do my level, we'll see. So I was cast in a play written by Kemp Powers where I had the opportunity to play the role of Malcolm X in One Night in Miami. I had the opportunity to play the role in three different cities, Los Angeles, Denver, and Miami. And part of my research was to read out loud Haley's autobiography of Malcolm X to get cadence, to get sound, and and to, and to oh, wow. get the life. So, I, as you know, my love, my I wife. I didn't even know this part. I, 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 this part. I well, but our family lived with that play from 2013 to 2018, and so I deep dove into that, and uh, it was an extraordinary research. Alex Haley's work is, for me, very informative and very respectful and very honorable and not exploitive at all. And that is my connection to Kemp Powers because Kemp, by casting me in his play in the world premiere that became this awesome movie as well years later, it's been a fun journey. So I'm excited to to get him talking here in, in a little bit. But the book uh, of Roots is 688 pages long. 688. Now later when we talk to our guest tonight, my brother Kemp Powers, we talk about how folks is just getting to know black folks, right? Like, uh -huh. you know, we've been studying white people and Europeans for, and, you know, we've all, I, I'm, cl I'm a classically trained actor. I've done Moliere. I've done Shakespeare, right? Like, <laughs> I've been studying Euro sensibilities for decades. But people, they don't know us. This book tried to let folks know about black folks. So uh, my, my question, love, my question, and it is a loaded one on purpose, is... Did Roots misfire or light it up? Did it exploit or did it honor? I think that just to get the platform, there's a bit of exploitation that comes out of it. You know, can someone else benefit from telling this story? By and large, I feel like uh, it, it honored. Um, it, I mean, it certainly reached someone like me, bicultural family that was looking for identity hearing about it, seeing it, seeing Lar, <laughs> seeing his face and going, wow, he's three shades darker than me. And he's, he's here. He's not just on my children's television show that I was watching. He's here on this screen, like as an actor, as a storyteller, telling the story that was important to him. For me, I, I don't know that I'm privy to all the exploitation of the story, but for me personally, it has grounded me in a way 
even without even having read all of these 688 pages, just knowing that the story is out there and the pathway that it created for me to be able to make my own choices. Um, I feel like it honored. One thing about the books that are 688 pages, you know, like the first draft was like 5,000 pages, right? Like, so, I mean, the the amount (laughs) of research, right? We have talked a lot about the responsibility we hold as storytellers to get it right, right? We want our identities uh, represented properly. We want the whole truth to be told, not the half truth, not the white truth, but the people's truth. Roots is Alex Haley's identity story. His ancestry story, after all. We've done similar research in the first several episodes of our own podcast to explore our origin stories. Are we or are we not? Well, let me rephrase that. Are we honoring or are we exploiting our history? And to what end if it is exploitive? I think the one thing is that when a person knows themselves, they will be able to understand whether they're exploiting or they're telling the truth. Yes. Are you trying to appease someone for personal gain? Or are you trying to tell a story for the gain of, of the masses of the community? Yes. And I think, I think that's how you tell the difference between whether you're exploiting or whether you are really telling the truth is that are you in service of yourself or are you in service of the greater good? And how do we make others through our own experiences of understanding who we are and understanding our identity, how do we make others uphold the truth to stereotypes and, and nod to new narratives for our audience. We had a internal conversation earlier on about Alex Haley's quote that started up this, uh, this episode and the use of the N word. And we are very conflicted about and cognizant and aware of, of language and the use of terms and the use of words and descriptive terms. We're trying to deep dive into story and share from our unique lens what the world looks like to us. And I feel like now is the time to do that. I feel like there's a there's there are audiences out there. There are individuals out there ready and willing to and wrapped audiences out there ready and willing to listen, just as I am as an audience member, to other cultures who explore theirs. And I feel that is the, the way to kind of bring together a, a unified s- story. The thing is, is that anybody wants to walk into a room and be their authentic selves and be and feel like they belong there and be able to show up with everything that they have in their whole history. And it shows up into the room and then there's acceptance and there's love and there's understanding, all of those kinds of things. And I think that where exploitation begins is with somebody who doesn't know who they are, but they know they need to be somewhere else than where they are. Or they're trying to appease a power structure. They're trying to appease well, somebody. Sure. Yeah, they're trying to yeah, earn it's called something. The white, it's, it's called this <laughs> idea, this fake idea of white being white structure, which robs white people of all of their own. We've talked about in early episodes about. Yes. The Channing uh, power talked you know, about their, that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. About like your own history and where you come from in order to gain something else. And so for me, the difference between like exploitation and telling the truth is like, do you know who you are? Have you taken into consideration all the things that you've learned in your life? Yes. And the point of this, of this podcast, for those who are listening, is that you are empowered and 
to tell your own story and know that it's of worth. And, and really that's the reason that we're, that we're even doing all this. If you've made it this far, <laughs> if you listen to everything, that's the, that is the point of it all. Listen, I keep seeing this and I'm going to say it again. We are the new storytellers. We must be prepared to show the way as we forge ahead to showing others who the hell we truly are. Right? I mean, right. And by the way, in our last episode, we chatted with filmmaker Jacqueline Olive about being the authors of history. And she touched on honoring and exploiting also. Yeah. So... I want you to get the full experience. So please be sure to go back to episode five um, if you missed it and, and soak up the knowledge she dropped. Yeah, uh, She was amazing. She's a sincere storyteller talking about the history of our country from her point of view. And in the end, when we're telling history, it's about point of view. Erica Alexander touches on this. That's, yes. I mean, these sisters really brought it. I mean, it's it, and, and, and I'm thrilled to add in a strong male voice as our next guest, Kim Powers, to add to this awesome launch of this podcast idea that we're exploring. Uh, it's just been really, really cool. And so this is the, the segue into bringing in our guest, writer, playwright, screenwriter, journalist, and now director, Brother Kemp Powers. We're so excited to have Kemp here with us. He began as a journalist. He is now a screenwriter, co-director, and playwright. Kemp wrote a theater play, One Night Miami, which had its world premiere at the Rogue Machine Theater here in Los Angeles, and starred our very own Jason Delane as Malcolm X. Me. <laughs> yes, Jason. <laughs> Kemp adapted One Night Miami into a film of the same name, directed by the amazing, beautiful, gorgeous Regina King and Kemp received Best Adapted Screenplay nomination for the film. Our friend Kemp co-directed and co-wrote the animated Pixar film Soul, which was nominated for multiple Academy Awards and won an Oscar for Best Animated Feature. Our friend recently joined the directing team for the sequel to Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse, the sequel, alongside Joaquin DeSantos and Justin Cake Thompson. Well, tonight we are thrilled and honored and proud to be talking with our good friend, playwright, screenwriter extraordinaire, and just really, honestly, an all-around great dude, Kemp Powers. Yay, Kemp. Welcome. Thanks for joining <laughs> us, man. Thanks for joining us for this. Thanks for having me here. I know you're very busy, man. How's everything going? What you been up to? What can you speak to? Things are pretty, yeah, things have been busy, busy. You know, right now I'm... Um, in the midst of directing the sequel to to Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse and that is uh yes. that is like three full-time jobs wrapped into one <laughs> don't, don't ask me how I'm doing it but at the same time I'm also <laughs> polishing off a screenplay that I've been working on for the better part of the past year I can't talk too much about that but it's a it's another yeah. project I'm I'm pretty passionate about and you know the nature of the the nature of the beast you always have few things that you have in various stages of development because you never know what's going to yeah. pan out. Mm -hmm. 
there's really no sure things in, in this business. You, you know what yeah. I mean? So people, people think it's the idea and they don't realize it's, it's all about the execution. That's, that's the hard yeah. part. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just continuing to do what I do. I'm flashing back to when we first met. Um, I'm flashing back to, gosh, the spring of 2013. You had a world premiere play in in auditions over at the Rogue Machine Theater in Los Angeles. And I'm, I'm remembering I got a Facebook friend uh, message saying we're looking from a, from a dear friend, saying we're looking for a light-skinned actor to come audition for the role of Malcolm X. And I was like, show me where, tell me, tell me the address, show me where to show up. Then she sent a copy of your script of your play and I read it and little did you know, or little did she know, not only am I a huge historian, civil rights uh, uh, person, I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan. So in the play, I got to a scene where you have Malcolm X leaving an argument in a motel room to go buy a Bob Dylan record to come back and make his point. And I was, I would read that and I was like, Oh man, I know brother Malcolm was much taller than me and much thinner than me, but I got to give this a go. <laughs> and you, you cast me. I remember when Jason read that part <laughs> and I was like, okay, there's not even a chance that I could say, but babe, we got all these babies. We got all these kids. How are you going to go do this play? He was gone. It was gone. I was like, I can only be here to support. And then we did. Yeah. So we did that. We did your play that summer with Blessings. I was able to go with a production to Denver with it. We went to Miami, in Miami with it. You did it in Miami as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes, I did in 2018. Me and my family lived with that piece of yours for a good five or six years. And then to see what, what you and Regina were able to do with the movie. I mean, it's just really been um, amazingly cool seeing all of this success land on the lap of a really, really good dude. And so I'm just thrilled. We're thrilled to know you, man. We're thrilled to have you here, man. Thanks, man. Well, I mean, that's the, that whole experience, that journey has been, that's the textbook definition of a labor of love. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. it, I, I think people in, in, their, in their remembrances of the story, they would see it probably as a constant ascent. The reality is it was a roller coaster. That that play and the film version has been both embraced and abandoned so many times. You know, <laughs> there there's there's so many close calls. There's so many transfers that didn't happen. You know, yes, it sir. didn't go to the West End. It didn't go to Broadway. It, it was it was kind of like considered that. That's the thing about theater and the the life cycle of a play is people are quick to declare plays kind of done or over or having run their course especially if they don't hit certain benchmarks and i guess Mm -hmm. ignorance really is bliss because i i hadn't really been aware of all those things i think maybe if i had been aware of all these unwritten benchmarks i might have kind of given up (laughs) but because i didn't know Mm -hmm. any better i was like oh okay well they don't want to do it no big deal i'll just do this here and of course when it wasn't really until after the play did not transfer to the West End after an incredibly successful run in London at the Dunmar, which got us an Olivier nomination. And I mean, yeah. I was like, wow, we did it. We're going to we're going to go to the West End. This is like a dream. And because of a number of different factors that didn't happen, you know, you you see it once again. It's like, oh, once again, there's no more interest in the play. And, and that's when I first thought like, oh, well. Maybe I should adapt it into a film. <laughs> you know, <laughs> since like like honestly, if the play had gone to the West End and Broadway, I probably wouldn't have adapted it into a movie. Interesting. It's just interesting. It was a story that I wanted to tell 
And for a long time, to be honest, I, I couldn't see it as a film. It was only because throughout that entire life cycle of the play, I was also very slowly building my chops in film and television that yes. by the time that moment landed, it was like, oh, I think it can be adapted into a film, but only if you let me adapt it, you know, like, which is something that in 2013, uh-huh. I wouldn't have been able to to say that or do it, right. to be perfectly yeah. honest. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to pull off in 2013. I needed six, seven years worth of screenwriting experience to be in Mm -hmm. the place to adapt my own work and to also be in the place mentally where I wasn't so precious about it. So I was happy to let some things go from the play in order to make it a better film script, because that's the other thing about it is, I mean, people who see the film, the vast majority of people who saw the movie have not seen the play. Because again, right. my play wasn't this, it's not a play that ran in a hundred cities. I mean, it's had right. maybe a dozen, a dozen productions total all over the world. People are not familiar yeah. with it. So there, I think they're going with the assumption that, oh, the, it, this is probably just exactly the same as the play with a couple of little additions. And it's like, oh, it's actually really different. Like I, yeah. I, I did, I kind of tore it down to the studs. I'm pretty pleased with how it turned out. Do you think your experience, or not do you think, how did your experience in the writer's room of, say, a Star Trek, or I, I know if I have the story correct, a sample of when I, Miami led you to Soul, correct? I got brought on to Soul because um, Soul has a really incredible production department. They have some production executives who are always kind of scouring the field looking for new writers. And, and that's just the way Pixar operates. And I believe it was a producer who was at Chernin, who I had met with years ago, who liked my writing. And I pitched them several ideas that they, they didn't want to do, but they just remembered me and my voice that said, Oh, mm. uh, when, when Pixar went out, I was like, we're looking for, for writers to maybe work on this, this film we've got codename soul at the time that it was this executive that actually said, you should take a look at this Kent powers guy. I bet. And this was, I can't even believe she remembered me from years earlier. And so they contacted my agent and the only sample really that they had to share with them was my theater writing, my playwriting. So they sent them One Night in Miami, which really piqued their interest in me as a writer. Then they asked, well, does he have anything else? Does he have any comedy writing? And then the second sample they sent them was actually a a pilot that me and a friend had sold to FX that had never been produced. So <laughs> it's it's basically my play and my work that didn't get made that uh-huh. got me the the job writing on and eventually um, co co directing Soul. And I think it's just because my writing displays my strong voice, and and it's probably part of the reason why I didn't succeed in several of my first writers' rooms. Because you know the reality is I was on Star Trek season one, and they they let me go. You know you know what I mean? Like they were. <laughs> so like I I, I suffered one failure after another in television, either getting bounced out of writer's rooms or working on shows that were not getting made, not getting greenlit. Mm-hmm. And so I really just, I was kind of starting to wonder to myself, like, wow, maybe, maybe this isn't going to work out for me because even the shows that I pitched and sold, I couldn't get made on the air. But again, it's, it's about finding the people who get you. And yeah. there's probably no place in the entire business that values original distinct voices more than Pixar. 
you know, and there's this huge mm. mystique about Pixar, Pixar where people don't know what is it, what is the formula? What do I have to do? What kind of sample do I need to be into Pixar? And it's like, there is no one thing. All that matters is kind of you because Pixar does this investment, not in an idea, but in the people. It's all about the person mm. because if they, be if they believe in you and they believe in your voice, then they believe that you could write a story about a rat that wants to cook and it's going to be good. That's, you see what I'm saying? Right. Like so many, that's right. So many of their ideas are on paper. So out there that, that no one would want to make them, but it's their belief <laughs> in the artist, their belief in the storyteller that makes them yeah. cool with it. I mean, the idea of soul, I mean, some of these, I, yeah. I could, you, you could just run down the list. I mean, yes, there's the, there's there's Ratatouille, there's Wally. I mean, there's Up, where it begins with a couple, you know, finding out that a woman can't have children and then dying. dying and going yeah. through like like there's yeah. there's so many of their stories, their ideas that are not on movies. the on paper. Yeah, they're but they're yeah. but they're not sellable. They're not sellable ideas because it was never about the idea. It was about the storyteller, and that's how I describe myself. People like hmm. you know playwright, screenwriter, director, whatever. I'm just a storyteller. The medium might change. Yeah. That, that's the only thing that changes is the medium. And I try to tell the story in the medium that best suits that story. And um, I think it's only because I was a journalist for close to two decades hmm. that I'm, I'm, I'm flexible in that way. And that I don't feel like, oh, it's got to be television. It's got to be film. It's, it's got to be theater. I do love theater, but I don't have to tell you guys theater is not something that any of us can make a real living doing and it's not even about money it's just it's sad that there's no working living playwright who doesn't also either teach at a university or write for film and television there is no one no one it doesn't matter you know how many broadway productions they've had that you don't have to supplement it and despite that we love theater so much that we still just throw ourselves at it the first thing i did after I finished After Soul and One Night in Miami both came out within 60 days was I dove right back into a new play. Like, that's the first thing I did. They're like, oh, so what are you going to do now? Like, da -da. it's like, oh, well, there's this play I want to try to get get up and, and stage during the pandemic. And thankfully, yeah, the yeah. folks at um, Center Theater Group were really cool. And they did. Um, we did like one of their first COVID safe recordings of the play over at the Kirk Douglas Theater. But, uh -huh. but you know, theater no one would know who I was as a storyteller, I don't think, if not for theater, because that was the first medium that allowed my pure, honest voice to be seen and heard uh, by an audience. The same voice that was often told it wasn't valid or it wasn't legitimate in, in so many other mediums. I, I love what you're saying in terms of, um, you know, being a storyteller, because that really puts... It puts it. It doesn't necessarily put the self at the center. It's about what you're trying to communicate to other people, right? Because if you, mm -hmm. otherwise you'd just be driven by ego, and then you would have left a long time ago. <laughs> right. Um, exactly. And so I feel like like this episode is about like when you have that that point of view as a storyteller. Like how do you how do you maintain integrity in storytelling? And when you're you know telling a story are you exploiting it for the sake of a good story and how do you uphold the truth and all of that and even though you can't make money in the theater in the way that we can i feel like that you can in other spaces i feel like it's a place that actually allows you to kind of explore what those things are with a little bit more uh latitude you know absolutely i i agree i mean it's it's an interesting question because for me it's really about 
emotional honesty. Um, because look, you, the wonderful thing about storytelling, but also the maddening thing is that it's imperfect. Like it's, it's never going to be a hundred percent accurate, even when you're doing something that's very real. How many times have you like told a story about an event and you remember it with such vivid detail that it's burned into your psyche. Then you share the story with someone else who was also there and there's all the details you got wrong. You know what I mean? And it's and it's like, no, wait, we weren't here. We were there. And that wasn't this. It was that. But it's still the same story because what it's a it has emotional honesty. The point of the story isn't all of those all of that minutia because our our minds are our minds can't really be trusted um, in that way. We're, mm-hmm. we're fallible. And so for me, it's always been about emotional honesty and storytelling to me, good storytelling is really about creating empathy. I think when we have a shared, when we have a story that people relate to, it brings us to together. So there's a certain type of story that I like to tell, and that translates into pretty much all the work that I do, whether it be a play or a, a film, if, if they're... The, People will say like, wow, there's like no common threads in any of your writing because you write about just about everything. I'm like, actually, there is a common thread and it's that I'm trying to generate empathy. We've kind of endured the better part of almost 20 years of um, snark and cynicism. And there's nothing wrong with that. I've, I've enjoyed as much of the clever, snarky, cynical shit as anybody else. But I have to uh-huh. say, in seeing the, the result of that, not just on our generation, but on our kids, it kind of bums me out that they missed any sincerity or earnestness at all. And I do remember like before we went into the the cynical years, we had a lot of earnest years too. You know, mm-hmm. there was nothing cynical about growing up watching Sesame Street. You know, there was right. nothing cynical right. about watching, watching freaking Punky Brewster. Uh, uh, great stories, I just think, promote empathy. And, and that's really all of it because, you know, we, we've been, it's been div- even before the 2016 election. I mean, we've just been in a quite a divisive period and people there, the battle lines are drawn and, and I'm as guilty as anyone else of being pretty, you know, hardcore and some of my personal and, and political beliefs. But unless we want an outcome, that's just like mutually assured destruction. We have to find a way to, to, to connect on the things that we, you know, have in, have in common. And I realize that when it comes to my, when it comes to my entertainment, I don't segregate my entertainment the way I segregate my social life. That's for sure. There's a whole series of TV shows and movies that I watch that I have to like watch with headphones on, but I'm still enjoying the hell out of them that might be considered not appropriate anymore. You know what I mean? Because it's still speaking to, to, to like life and a reality that I recognize. So again, it's it's emotional honesty. Integrity for me has never really been a problem because I, I had like no expectations of any kind of success. And the more any the few times that I tried to like bend and contort myself to fit myself into some shape that I didn't belong or someplace I didn't belong, a hundred percent of the time it was a disaster. It was a disaster. I love that you just said that, Kip. I love that you just said that because you know what that does for us? It brings us to our cocktail confession. Are you ready for that part? 
I am ready. <laughs> I am ready. Okay, Kemp is ready for his cocktail confession. So, you know, you're talking about this place about and telling stories. You know, we and as you just said, you know, we all, you know, we hold the power to tell our own stories, but it sounds like all these different things are pulling you. You know, how do you honor your own identity in the stories that you craft when you know all of these things that you've just talked about that are happening in the world and how do you get a story made and, you know, the ups and downs and the roller coaster of, of you know, is the play going to go to West End? Is it not? You know, what's going to happen? How do you honor your own identity in the stories that you craft? It's interesting because it sounds really simple, but I know who I am. And... It took me my whole life to know who I am. I'd say most people work overtime to never know who they really are. <laughs> but it's through the unique, it's through the challenges that I've had to face from being from being a very young man to my challenges in adulthood, through death and divorce and losing everything and hitting rock bottom and just being alone that... <laughs> I got to, I've gotten to spend a lot of time alone with myself. And I came out of that really knowing who I am. And most people try so hard to pretend that they know everything and everyone. I'm the opposite. I don't know anything or anyone except me. But I know me really, really well. <laughs> I know what I can. I, and and that's, that's a great power. Because if yeah. it's not going to work for me, I will walk away. I will... I, I, I am not one who likes to speak just to hear the sound of his own voice. It, it, it largely contributed to my failures in early writer's rooms, where it was very much about, you know, mm. squeaky wheel gets the grease. I'm not a very squeaky mm. wheel. I don't say much, but when I say it, people tend to listen to it because they know it's really measured and they know it's coming from like an, an honest, like very, very real place. And, um, that that's really all it is, is that I just, I know myself and the things that are super important to me, there's almost nothing that's more important to me right now at this stage of my life than how the work that I have done is going to be perceived when I'm no longer here. And mm. I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little bit older. A lot of people get into this creative business when they're super duper young and we all have room to make mistakes and a lot of people have things that they're like super duper embarrassed of. I, I don't feel like I can afford to have too many of those things. And I don't want I don't want something where I said, well, I didn't want to do it. I knew it was a disgrace, but I had rent to pay. I'm I just I would just not pay my rent and get evicted. You know what I mean? Like I <laughs> and, 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 and that's not a that's not a easy thing to for people to say, like, I've got kids right. just like you got kids. So, you know, I'm not saying this as some, you know, 18 year old that it's, it's incredibly terrifying to say no and walk away from things. But I've just found that I can live with myself better when, when I just feel like I'm not, my soul isn't being eaten away. You know what? I, I want to say one thing, uh, in terms of like when I saw One Night Miami and, you know, in terms of your own identity, what I loved about it was that it offered it offered another identity of black maleness that I just wasn't seeing. Do you know what I mean? Like it, like the, the different ways of, of embracing blackness in, as a male and the way that you come into it. Like, did you find that missing in the narratives that were out there? Because I feel like 
I feel like what I saw with One Night Miami in particular, and then of course it carried on with Soul, was like this other way of entering into the humanity of being a black male. Like, do you feel, do, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you bring yourself to your work? I bring myself into everything I do. And, and, and yes, in the cases of those two films, it was, I very much felt that it was missing, which, which makes the execution of them that much more difficult. But I always also believe, like, I know the life I'm living. I know the friends that I've had, the conversations that I've had with so many different other people like me. And despite the fact that sometimes you'll write a character and someone would say that, like, oh, well, that character's not believable, that character's not realistic, which I heard a great deal of for, for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew I knew those characters were real because we were those characters. You know, we we, mm-hmm. we talk. We like to say things like, you know, being black is not a monolithic idea. We we but that's that's a talking point that I don't think people have really played out in terms of their decisions and how black characters have have been executed. You know, even right. even a lot of times by black creatives in Hollywood, because you know, there's a lot of mm-hmm. money to be made in lowest common denominator stuff and low hanging fruit. There's a lot of money to be made in that, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not begrudging anyone doing what they're what they're going to do. But I'm just I'm just saying, like, isn't it amazing how the way the difference in how young black people were perceived pre and post a show like Atlanta? You know, the 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 idiosyncratic black nerd who's also got like thugs in the family, but all, you know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's not like, okay, they're either aristocratic Jack and Jill or they're living in a housing (laughs) project with with, like nothing in between, you know? And and, and so, uh, you know, you watch a show like Atlanta and it's like the main character dropped out of like Yale, his cousin's a rapper and he has to like go to his uncle's house. Who's a super smart guy who keeps an alligator in his house and it's just kind of like <laughs> that feels to me that feels more like real life even though that show is posited and marketed as twin peaks with with rappers yeah. but it actually feels hyper realistic you know to me despite some of those fantastical elements and that's all it is it's just like you have Donald Glover and his team just kind of executing a story that that feels very real to them and it's about convincing people to 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 let you or if they don't let you doing it anyway. Again, that was the power of theater, right? The power of theater was I got to tell a story that I sincerely do not believe anyone at film or television would have let me tell One Night in Miami the way I told it. No one would have. Uh-huh. It was only the I had to do it in play form in order to prove the concept improve that it wouldn't be to life yeah you you have to just do it on your own if it had been something that you pursued as a film it would that story would have never been told that way i do believe that much Uh but now that it has been i feel like it opens the door for other people you know i think people this country is still getting to know us after over 400 something years they're still getting to know us you know what i mean like like we know we know, but, but we know white white Americans, but white Americans and everyone else in this country is still getting to know black people. And, yeah, and that's yeah. something it's important to remember is that as a community and, and as individuals, they still don't know us. And 
we're we're showing more and more of ourselves every single day but there's still so much of us that that hasn't been shown and and so you know i'm just showing the part of me uh, right. you know that that i think represents a sizable amount of people like myself as well i know because these people are my friends what i've always admired about you kind of too in, in your storytelling is that's that's a very brave approach right like i know some of your past stories that we that, we, that we've shared throughout the years and and i guess this is leading me to a to my next question which is using life in storytelling using yourself in storytelling when life happens whether it's joyous or tragic how do we take the lessons that we how do you maintain your voice and and your braveness and your enthusiasm for showing yourself through the art of your writing how do you take the lessons from the event that occurred in the past or whatever it is you know without exploiting that event right I mean, it's not easy to tell the story, period. I don't really do, I, I used to go and, and, and tell stories um, on like the moth and story. I, I would yes, stand up in front yes. of an audience and just tell a true story. And, and I don't do that anymore. It's just something that I stopped doing because I always really wanted the story to stay in the room with the people who I'm talking to. It was it was mm-hmm. not something that I that I really wanted to just like go go wide. I just wanted to talk and have a conversation with people. Um, and there's something about being in a, in a space with someone when they're telling something personal. But also, it's it's very painful for me to, whether it's true or it's based on something real. I, I was telling a friend of mine that like with every project that I get completed, I feel like I die a little bit because I it's like I have mm. to put a piece of my soul into it, and it sucks because it's you. So when people are not, not nothing you ever do will be universally loved, but when people start tearing your work apart and, and saying how much they hate it, it feels like a referendum on you and who you are as a human being. And that shit's really painful. So every time I do something, I'm just kind of like, all right, I'm a little more dead. You know, it's like a yeah. little bit more of my soul is, is gone. That's the reason why I don't, I don't see myself doing this for for more than another you know five or five or ten years um, mm. to be perfectly honest because uh, i love what i'm doing but it takes a lot out of me it yeah. really really does it's mm-hmm. it's excruciating work and and it's not easy and yeah. once it's done i have this incredible feeling of satisfaction that i got it completed but the process of writing it and making it it's really excruciating for me sometimes because I am, I am. People say, "Don't, don't ever take any of this personal." It's just, and I don't know how. Uh, yeah, it's like when an yeah. when an artist is in a museum in the gallery, it, it would be like you walking in and, and spitting on their painting. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh, don't take it personal. It's just spit. You know, <laughs> no way. Like, no, it's it's me. It's me up on that yeah. canvas. Correct me if I'm wrong, Kent, but I remember early conversations in the rehearsal room of, of the world premiere of One Night in Miami. You were saying you were having these conversations in your mind that the four men were having in the room back in back in the day. Right. Like so to explore yeah. that. Yeah, it was it was is, a, it was a conversation really cool. in my dormitory. Absolutely. It was a conversation yeah. Yeah. that me and my buddies had in our dormitory. But I just reverse engineered those words and those debates back into the mouths of the men who inspired that way of thinking, you know, Mm -hmm. because each man inspired a very specific way of thinking. And then the challenge was about creating a characterization of each of them that I felt was respectful and honored, you know, each of those men, but everyone's not going to agree on that. Some people are going to 
I'm sure take offense to, you know, they, they want to see their heroes the way they want to see them. The way they want to see them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but that wasn't the story that, that I was trying to tell. Yeah. I have a question. Like, you know, when you talk about like as artists, we're putting ourselves out there and whatever the critics are going to say, or the people in the room are going to say, whether it's, you know, on a national platform or, or in a room where there's only, you know, 10 people, are you able to differentiate between people who just have a perspective about what a judgment or understanding or, or no, no experience in, in, in being a black person and being a black male and somebody who's actually like looking at the art for what it is. Like, does that ever get confused? You know, in terms of bringing your identity to the table, sometimes you walk into the room, like, is it their bias that they're unable to see what's actually being said or are they actually able to look at it for the art that it is? Another wonderful thing about theater is that no one, almost no one's going to go to a play who isn't at least like genuinely curious about the like, like, you don't, when you're releasing a, a movie or a TV show, there's a certain segment of trolls that if they just see that it's got black people in it, they're going to give that shit one star on Rotten Tomatoes and just mm-hmm. talk crap. Like, like they, they hate it before they've even seen it and that, but that's just, that's par for the course for film and television, and it doesn't bother me as as much. I've found that criticism in theater has always been a lot more thoughtful. You know, I I, I think that even when I disagree with or I'm annoyed by someone's comments, they people send, tend to work really hard to kind of explain where they're where they're coming from. And and again, like I might have some feelings about it, but again, you put your work out there, it's going to cause a reaction in people. It just is. If anything, the people who are super duper passionately negative, all that says to me is that, man, it really got to you. You know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that, that's yeah. like, you okay, something. now my work is like living up in your head rent free. So <laughs> you're going to be thinking, you're going to know my name. You're going to be thinking about me. Yeah. 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 yeah like, so like that's, in a in a weird way, that's almost like a, a compliment. You you know what I mean? When it's you 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 look at the the work of certain artists, and people don't have lukewarm reactions to certain people. You know, it's it's either passionately pro or passionately uh, uh, against, and that's okay. Uh, again, yeah, it's, yeah. it's an interesting. I, I know that's not a that's not a great answer, but I I don't really parse out much of the criticism there's been one or two things that it's when it comes from someone who's kind of positing as though they're coming from this place of intellectualism and their Mm -hmm. criticism is just wrong it's just like wrong on so many levels that's the stuff that 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 might get to me but I've, i've gotten pretty good at just kind of saying you know what it's easy for me to bite my tongue and just kind of keep on living my life because it's like everyone thinks this is easy and I always say, go right on out there and, and do it yourself and do knock it, your it out of the self, park. Yeah. And and it's great. One of my one of my favorite Jay-Z songs begins, motherfuckers saying they made hove. So I say, okay, then make another hove. You know what I mean? Like it's it's just <laughs> like if you, if, if, if you if you think that it's just like a, I stumbled I stumble into ideas and, and just shit falls on me like Forrest Gump and it's that easy, <laughs> then go right on ahead and endure <laughs> the pain 
of trying yeah. to get your work up on stage and up on screens and up on television and and get back to me about just how easy it is to to navigate that right along those lines man keep getting your work on stages and on screens we are rap audience man we are avid participants obviously i lived with your one night miami in three different cities man thank you for that opportunity that was a blessing that i will always remember i can't wait to see what's what what you got coming down the pike next man just continue yeah, continued blessings yeah i'm trying my best man no you're doing it you're doing it you are and you are an example of like the, the one thing that you said and that's the one thing that i that's why i knew that one night in miami was going to do well is that in terms of identity you were like I know who I am. Yes. So I can, I know who I am. I know where I'm from. And that allowed you to weather all the other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ken Powers, thank you, sir. Thank <laughs> you for being here with us. And I hope you can come on back in season two and, and bless us with more of your time and insight and wisdom in this in this wild, crazy uh, show business that we're in. Keep telling your stories. Your voice is is strong and and thank you thank you thank you hopefully i'll have something interesting worthy of talking about in a year ah <laughs> uh, you will say word man you your, your connection to history and the way you teach us uh through through your work is is just it's awesome really thank you thanks a lot guys cheers cheers my cheers friend. cheers Well, Jason, we did it. Yes. We opened doors with our team, turned on bright lights, and chewed some bats out of Belfries. <laughs> okay. okay, Jane Eyre, but yes, we did. And I'm, I am, uh, ah, I'm proud of us. I toast to you and to our audience, audiences, and we'll be back. See you next season. Please keep telling your own stories as you listen. And and drink, drink responsibly. responsibly. is produced by the Lager Lane Group. We would like to thank Lager Lane Spirits co-producers and writers, Courtney Oliphant and Pepper Chambers Ceresi, co-producer Matthew Ceresi, podcast coordinator Amanda Dinsmore, sound designer David B. Marling, the Launch Guild, and Toby Gad for his original piano improvisation. We'd also like to thank Podcast Haven and our guest, Kemp Powers. Remember to grab our sidecar recipe and show notes by going to lagralanespirits.com. And we'll see you next time. We'll see you next season. And if you love the cocktail or the episode, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Please. Please, please drink, drink responsibly. responsibly. Please drink responsibly. responsibly. Please, please drink, drink responsibly. responsibly. <laughs>
Oh my god, you suck! You are you so don't bad continue. at this! Please? I am continuing. No, you're like... You, you, no, it's like, please drink responsibly. That, that, n- Listen, we gotta go to bed.